what about my shredder? What about my shredder? Hey, press record. Got it. Okay. Let's go then. Let's go. Right. You can introduce You him. are. Hello and welcome to episode 86 of the uh, Tetrapod Sorty podcast. I checked the figures just this morning and our recent two episodes have just bumped us over the 12 million listener mark. So thank you very much to our many new <laughs> listeners. Um, I'm unemployed Brendan. Are you going to publish my novel? And I podcast today with... Chat GPT. <laughs> um, yeah. Is there anything we need to say, like follow up from last time, or exciting news at your end? Um, no. Okay, no. I want to. Right. Although um, Sharon did send um, send a send an email uh, with a story linked to um, um, a story from India where a leopard got into a court, and the story is that it attacked the lawyers. Which seems wow. a bit, bit too on the nose. So too, too good to be true. There were sev- several injuries. Yes. Wow. Before the okay. a- animal was sedated or tranquilized huh. and got out. Yes. Yeah. There's 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 at least three of these uh, Indian leopards get into small space where there are people stories, and uh, they're all pretty dramatic. Uh, so yeah. So thanks to the for the feedback we received on the the cat episode, which we at the time of. Why am I even saying this? All right, stop there. So what we're going to talk about today, do you know what we're going to talk about today? We're going to talk about a couple of recent studies that have all appeared at the time of speaking within the last literally two days, and they're all on the paleobiology of Mesozoic non-bird dinosaurs, and they're all in some way, gee gosh darn whiz, that's actually jolly quite exciting. He says mixing different English dialects. So... Uh, and these studies concern spinosaurs, yawn, um, uh, ankylosaurs, and potentially all other dinosaurs, and thirdly, manoraptoran theropods. So, starting with the spinosaur one, um, you might have seen it's got quite a lot of coverage in the press, and it's covered in the most recent article at the blog, Tetrapod Zoology. Myself and a team of colleagues, we've published our study of brain endocast data um, in baryonychine spinosaurs. So in 2021, myself, Chris Barker and Neil Gosling were all part of the same research group at the University of Southampton uh, and a bunch of colleagues. Dave Hone was in there as well. We published two new baryonychine Baryonyx-like spinosaurids from the West Exclamation of the Isle of Wight, and I probably discussed this at length on the podcast before, and I've certainly written about it at length, and we reckoned that we had two new taxa from the West Exclamation, Ceratosucops in Frodios, or Ceratosucops in Frodios, and Riparo Veneta Milnery. And they're both, uh, they both include partial and pretty decent 3D skull material, really beautifully preserved, and they've both got brain cases. So, of course, you've got a brain case, 
on the list of things to do, and there's a long list of things to do when you've got dinosaurs that include this much material. We're talking about dinosaurs that include a reasonable amount of material. Um, Ripper of Venator, certainly it's got a tail and stuff. Um, we're like, well, we need to do this, we need to do this, we need to do this. And one of the things we need to do is CT scan those brain cases, extract uh, brain um, endo. Well, I've always struggled to know how to explain this because we're reconstructing the brain digitally so we're creating a digital endocast of the brain but it's still wrong to call it a brain endocast because it's not an endocast an endocast is when sediment fills the brain case in you get a physical structure that you call an endocast so it's a digital endocast which is itself a mirror of the actual uh, gross morphology of the brain so that's basically what we've got we've got models of the brains um the the brain of um, yeah, the brain anatomy of Ceratosuchops. We actually CT scanned both Ceratosuchops and Riparovenator. Uh, I just realized I'm pronouncing it Riparovenator, where it should be Riparovenator or Riparovenator. I don't know. How do you say any of these words? Because it's Riverside Hunter. And I don't say Riparian when I'm talking about rivers. I say Riparian. But again, but I don't know. Is that right? <laughs> what do you reckon? I don't know who says archaeoteryx. So, yeah, the whole thing's a mess. Just say whatever's easiest. Exactly. Yeah, Riparo Veneta. Riparo Veneta feels more right. The Riparo Veneta Milnery specimen. Um, okay, so the Wessex Formation, part of the Wealdon Supergroup, Wealdon sediments are famously difficult to work with when it comes to CT because they often are infilled with. Um, like iron-rich minerals, so iron-rich sediments, which is exactly what you don't want when you're CT scanning things because um, <laughs> iron and similar um, elements are um, very diffuse to... They, they, they don't scan well, basically, and that was indeed the case. The, uh, the Riparovenator uh, brain case did not give good results at all, but the Ceratosuchops one actually really did. It gave us like, fantastically good results. In um, corresponding with other relevant uh, workers, we wanted data on baryonyx, the best known of the baryonychine spinosaurs, and we discovered that back in the day, Angela Milner took the um no she loaned i don't think she actually did it herself or she would have been involved on the authorship she must have loaned the baryonyx holotype skull to larry whitmer who took it overseas to a scanning facility in um ohio have i got that location right why am i saying ohio that now doesn't feel right uh, yes, it is. It's the Ohio Health Obliness Hospital in Athens, Ohio. So there was already an existing uh, brain endocast, a digital brain endocast for baryonics. So we worked together with Ryan Ridgely and uh, Larry Whitmer of Larry, Larry Whitmer's research group. And uh, yeah, it's like, wow, we've got really good brain endocast data for Ceratosuchops from the Isle of Wight and Baryonyx Walkeri from Surrey on the English mainland. That's very, very long-winded. I spent way too long talking about that. Um, people have CT scans, spinosaur brain cases before. Sharda et al. published a couple of years ago um, a study of um, Irritator, the Brazilian spinosaur. Sharda et al. 2020. But like, hey, we've we've now got Nikein data as well. 
And um, the main spin we've sort of put on this, this is what we say in the paper, which was published in Journal of Anatomy, is that the gross morphology of the brain is essentially, this, essentially, I don't say the same, but it is very similar to that of other big tetaneurin theropods. So like uh, uh, allosauroids. And also, and I just said tetaneurin, I shouldn't have said tetaneurin because uh, it's kind of similar to a belly sores as well. And some workers in my opinion, very unwisely now regard a belly sores as tetaneurins, whereas conventionally they were outside of tetaneuria. I really did not appreciate that decision. Um, but um, yeah, so... The Hang title... on, is it, a, is it a decision or a finding? It's a decision because... Okay, so going back to Gautier, Gautier 1986, which is basically sort of the pioneer study on you know, modern theropod phylogenetics, is that there's there's a divergence between the ceratosaur lineage and the bird yeah. lineage. And the bird lineage, he named that tetanuri, meaning stiff tails because of this overlapping you know, anatomy of the zygopopses in the tail. But later on, it's found that ceratosauria is... This is not agreed upon. There's competing, obviously, findings, but there are a bunch of studies that find ceratosauria to be non-monophyletic and some things that were on the ceratosaur lineage to actually be on the bird lineage. Yeah. So for that reason, so, and abelisaurs are, are one of those, one of the groups concerned. So abelisaurs in some phylogenies are closer to allosaurs and silurosaurs, we include birds, than they are to things like coelophysis, which is, oh my God, generally regarded as the anchor taxon for the clade called Ceratosauria, which again, is another terrible decision. Do you remember what I said ages back, like every single decision ever done in this field is bad? Well, um, why did they not use Ceratosaurus? Well, some of them have, some authors have, and other authors haven't. So, uh, so when Gautier names, Gautier doesn't name Ceratosauria, it, it goes back to Marsh, like in the late 1800s, but Gautier names Tetanuri. But when Gautier is doing this, people don't necessarily specifically state specific, what do you call those anchor tags that you have in phylogenies, specifiers. He doesn't necessarily have a specifier. He'll say that this clade, Ceratosauria, or this hypothesized clade, includes Coelophysis and Kin. Ceratosaurus, mm. uh, Carnotaurus, and Abelisaurus, and he doesn't necessarily, it's got to be anchored on that. So then later authors come along, and for whatever reason, they often make terrible decisions. And Paul Serino, God bless him, makes terrible decisions, in my humble opinion. And he anchored Ceratosauria on Coelophysis. But when they're where that because in his phylogeny there's a ceratosauria that includes Coelophysis and Ceratosaurus, but in other people's phylogenies, Ceratosaurus is not close to Coelophysis, it's closer to Coelurosaurus, included birds. So you've now anchored a ceratosauria on a clade that probably doesn't include Ceratosaurus. So, so that's that tangent. But Sorry, yeah. The reason I asked about that tangent is not, I don't think it's irrelevant. Um, you know, I because I want to know how where this sort of brain fits on the tree it wasn't just sort of like a what's the curiosity here as you were talk as you were saying but yeah i don't think it's a completely irrelevant tangent anyway go ahead yeah uh, i'd like i just want to sort of bring this to a close really because it's a uh, could go on for way too long but i want to i want to make two points number one is that uh, you'll know this very well if you know anything about brain anatomy and if you know stuff about anatomy and extinct animals in general 
the fact that there's different bits of the brain that correspond to different like functions and different sort of roles so and they're often quite um the parts of the brain are well demarcated in animals like theropod dinosaurs so at the way at the front sticking out forwards you've got the a long rod-like structure called the olfactory tract that terminates anteriorly in the two olfactory bulbs and famously they're really big in quite a lot of theropods although how big they are has been contested as you'll know if you're familiar with the tyrannosaur literature then you've got the um, forebrain and the midbrain and hindbrain and in theropods they're generally in a straight line rather than the hindbrain being folded up underneath the midbrain and forebrain as is uh, the, the case in animals like us um, and on the forebrain you can often see swellings like on either side that people have said are oh, these are the optic lobes and they tend to be pretty big they're really indistinct in lots of theropods we kind of are pretty sure they've got big optic lobes but it's hard to be absolutely sure and then also interestingly sticking out sideways close to the semicircular canals of the ear you've got this tab-shaped structure called the flocular lobe which is conventionally thought to be associated with it contains cells that are relevant to somatosensation, which is the ability of animals to sort of understand where their body parts are relative to one another in space. So, you know, when you put your hand out, even if you're not seeing it, you've got some idea of where it is, your ability to like connect your head movement to your eye, to your gaze, all that stuff is supposedly well, thought to be controlled by cells that are in the flocular lobes. And um, within spinosaurids, the irritator specimen has got bigger flocular lobes than our baryonychines and so that could be evidence that spinosaurine spinosaurids were more more specialized for like a sort of fixed stable gaze and better link between gaze and head movement than were baryonychines that that that's one possible explanation but then we're not even sure that the flocular lobe size does actually really explain this because some of the cells um, in the brain that are relevant to somatosensation what I was just describing they're not all in the flocular lobe anyway so and that yeah. brings me to the second issue which is so so like inferences based on gross morphology issue number one issue number two is that we in saying that baryonychines have got brains like those of other uh, big theropods we're only talking about gross morphology because, of course, the thing that we don't have a handle on at all, although I'll come back to that caveat, there's a caveat there, that we don't have a handle on is what, like, neuron density and brain actual soft tissue anatomy, you know, how the groups of cells were distributed within the brain. And that is ultimately the most important thing, because it might actually be that your brain is anatomically conservative in gross morphology, but you still have specialised bunches of cells inside the brain that are more relevant to all the things we're interested in in yeah. fact they're probably more important than gross morphology but we just don't have them so yeah. um yeah that's yeah what and, we're and, hoping and... is that gross morphology can tell you something but yeah it's always been a bit of a well it's probably going to tell you very very basic things maybe but trying yeah. to get at very complex things like well yeah that's right so we did what we could so uh, Chris Barker, um, he's doing his PhD on these baryonychines, these new baryonychines. So he he led all this work, and he did everything that you could in terms of all the different volume, all the bits of the brains you could, the bits of the brain you could partition, um, like measure them volumetrically, and so say things about like general inferences about like intelligence, air quotes around that term, and about like hearing sensitivity and about sense of balance and uh, olfactory 
prowess and all that sort of stuff. So that's all in the paper. So the paper, it's open access, modified skulls, but conservative brains, question mark, the paleo neurology and endocranial anatomy of Barry Nike and dinosaurs. And um, I mean, I will just say this, you know, that um, brains, uh, brains like this, dinosaur brains, are quite complicated in shape. They do look like they have specialized bits that are quite easy to pick out, right? Yeah. Um, they're not like a great big lump like our brain seems to be, right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the idea that this is relating fairly strongly to function is, seems reasonably sensible, obviously. Yeah. That's a good I mean, point. To be too much yeah. of a skeptic about it, they they do look yep. like specialized organs with specialized parts and lobes and things. Oh, that's yep. yeah, I, I'd agree with that. Yeah, the fact that you can clearly differentiate like the different cranial nerves and the fact that you can see some of the cranial nerves are bigger than others, yeah, just just in like first principles, you know, sort of just basic gross morphology. It's like, well, that nerve, the I don't know, the trigeminal, say the cranial nerve five, that was clearly quite important. And the optic lobe is pretty big. So sorry, the optic the optic nerve is pretty big. So that was also pretty yeah. important. You know, you can say that kind of thing. Whereas if you had like, yeah, you're right. If you had like a fossilized hominin brain and there are uh, primate brain endocast it's just like yeah it's just a big block. It's like <laughs> you can work out how roughly the size of it, but you can't do things like see um, not unless you got sort of super powered uh, in interpretive vision, as some workers apparently do. Um, you can't see distinct optic lobes and olfactory lobes, yada yada yada. So yeah, uh, yeah. so the the real take home. I mean, we did lean into this. Ooh, could it be their brain morphology is conservative despite their apparent anatomical specialization? We did lean into that angle in popular um, writings on this. Uh, paper but the real take home the big sort of the gee whiz thing is hey we've got we've now got brain endocast data from barry and ike and spinosaurus that's that's like it's another group that it's, it's good to have data on them you know sort of fleshing out the tree in terms of yeah i think this is sort of stuff that will become more relevant the more we've got you know once we've got a lot of it, it'll start the patterns might start to become more obvious and the differences and you know finding yeah so yeah <laughs> yeah the finding itself is not like oh wow their brains are pretty much the same as the other brains well yeah okay well but, so um, much yeah so much in paleontology and, in, and well not just paleontology okay let's broaden it out so much in science in general is you're trying to find a spin on it if you want to you know get some coverage in the media and whatnot you're yeah. saying we've discovered this and it means this but the key thing in science is we've discovered this we just didn't have this before we've now in fact and then if you're a real cynic and there are such awful people who tend to be quite sort of anti-scientific they're like oh so you discovered that dinosaurs have got color on their bodies oh i never would have guessed that before it's like well of course of course it was a thing it must have been a thing but the fact that we now know at least something that's that in itself is significant and novel and worth talking about we've discovered this thing we found a thing yeah, I have. guess the, the story, um, it's not much of a story, you know, scientists gather more data, right? It's like, okay, okay. <laughs> for most people, that's fairly, uh, hmm. yeah, but <laughs> what does it tell us? Well, we kind of got a result we were expecting. It's not unusual, but it is more data. <laughs> <laughs> or sometimes it's, we thought, yeah, I like the stories when it's like, we thought we were going to find this and we didn't, we found that. Yeah. Because again, um, the sort of you know, media sort of like, anti-science journalists who seem to be a big thing 
they write. Oh, scientists find out they were wrong. So, but that's really significant. It's finding out. Scientist does 30-year study and then finds out that all of his work was a waste of time. It's like, do you know how important that is? It's like, oh my God, I was wrong about something. Fundamentally wrong for my entire scientific career. We clapped our hands raw, as Richard Dawkins uh, famously reported when uh, someone, someone, some old dude got up on stage and said, oh, I was wrong. And they went, you well done! What a <laughs> goddamn genius! I mean, yeah, it's generally not the person that was wrong that's all that interested. They generally cling on to their wrong idea for quite some time. But <laughs> yeah. everyone else is quite excited. Yeah, famously to retirement. <laughs> Just about to retire and all that research I did. Yeah, I don't think it it counts for much, actually. Um, There was one caveat that I meant to come back to, and that is I said we don't have a handle on what uh, internal brain anatomy is like. And the caveat to that is that, in actual fact, a bit of non-bird dinosaurian brain tissue is actually known. It's from a British Iguanodontian dinosaur, and it was published by David Norman and someone called ooh, Brazier or something. Well, no, that can't be right. <laughs> um, <laughs> Norman and I don't know, something like that. Okay, do I have to do Iguanodon brain? And they did actually report, yeah, like a, a section of uh, actual preserved, um, yeah, brain, actual actual brain, because uh, it's just like a, a real ugly lump of um, Martin Brazier. Yeah, I did. Who, who is it's, it's a posthumous publication because he died in 2014. It's Brazier and Norman, or Norman and maybe it's Brazier actually. Looking at the way it's actually written, oh, dear. <laughs> don't read anything into that listeners um yeah okay so that's that brains right so so the second thing i want to discuss is this paper by junkie yoshida et al in communications biology and ankylosaur larynx provides insights for bird-like vocalization in non-avian dinosaurs very strange wording actually and um, it reports a set of kind of plate-like bones that are in the throat region of a specimen of Panacosaurus, a late Cretaceous Asian, ankylosaurid ankylosaur. And uh, this, the material isn't new. It was actually initially described in 2015 by Rob Hill. He, interpret, he interpreted the bones as uh, bits of the hyoid apparatus and linked them to like tongue anatomy and suggested that maybe this was evidence for like a particularly long and flexible tongue in Panacosaurus. But this study says that they are uh, parts of the laryngeal anatomy and in particular are cricoid and arytenoid cartilages, which are these large plate-like bones. And they say that the... excuse me, they say that the length of the arytenoid elements and the length of the, actually the length of the cricoid as well, they say their, their size and also the nature of the articulation between them, first of all, means that here in an ankylosaur, you've got a, a laryngeal anatomy that's fundamentally more bird-like than that of any other reptile. So it's way more bird-like than even in crocodilians. And the size of the bones and the nature of the joint also means that the animal would have been able to control like its uh, laryngeal aperture. It's like glottal openings and stuff um, to in bird-like fashion. That's essentially it. And therefore, 
uh, ankylosaurid, ankyl- you know, you never you never know how broad you should interpret the results when they pertain to a single species. But they're saying that Panacosaurus seems to have the capacity for uh, the generation of bird-like sounds. Now, of course, most people will be thinking straight away, well, hold on, bird sounds are generated in the syrinx, not the larynx. Birds do have a larynx and it is mobile. It's not used as a sound generator, but it's used as a sound modifier. So if they generate sounds in the syrinx, which is deep in the chest, sort of in the middle of uh, it's where the two bronchial tubes uh, diverge in sort of Y-like shape, um, the larynx in birds still like controls the uh, gl- the glossopharynx, the sort of like actual air opening space where air comes out of yeah. the trachea and they're saying that was the case so uh it's evidence that the larynx was a vocal modifier uh and whether it was the vocal organ is not known we don't know what the distribution of the syrinx is like in non-bird dinosaurs but even if it didn't have a syrinx the larynx could be the sound uh <laughs> i forgot on the terms of just used. it wouldn't just be the sound modifier it'd be the sound generator as well so but and then right Obviously, ankylosaurs, ornithischians, they're not on the bird branch within Dinosauria. They're, you know, almost as far from birds as you can be. So does it actually indicate that the capacity to... Basically, it doesn't... And again, it doesn't mean they're, like, tweeting and cawing and you know, make, making, like, sort of songs like uh, the majority of birds we're familiar with, 60% of extant birds being songbirds, passerines, doesn't necessarily mean that, but it does mean the capacity to make bird-like sounds could have been, this indicates that it could have been widespread across extinct dinosaurs. So, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, it's pretty interesting finding an ankylosaur of all things, isn't it? So, yeah. There you go. Yeah. If, the, if they're yeah. right, I mean, they, they seem to be right. It's the identification for these elements seems to be, seems to be correct. Um, yeah. So you'd be more familiar with this than I am, but it seems like this sort of throat anatomy stuff, you know, um, is a little bit under-researched until recently, would you say that's the case? These sorts of bones that they're often a little bit difficult to identify and what do they all mean and yeah, might be a bit ignored. I think that they might be fairly significant. Yeah, I kind of think that's true. But I also think that um, the bigger problem is just the scarcity of these kinds of fossils because... Okay, so outside of this specimen, which other non-bird dinosaurs have got preserved um, laryngeal cartilages? And it's like... Well, that's what I wonder. Now people are thinking, well, if we can tell something from them, let's look for them. Yeah. You know, as opposed to this is some sort of bone scrap. It's not much of a shape. I don't really know. Um, yeah. I, d- I don't know. It just seems like one of those things where pe- if people start looking for them, we might find them all over the place. Maybe. I mean, hyoids are not, they're not super common, but they're also not uncommon. There are like, I'm going to say a few tens of hyoid bones uh, known for non-bird dinosaurs. And the hyoids are kind of generally sort of like rod-shaped bones. There is a there is a kind of U-shaped or, or sort of rectangular tab-shaped hyoid bone that um, is known for dinosaurs associated with the rod like elements and they're known to be connected to like tongue musculature and the sort of musculature underneath the lower jaw um so uh yeah people have found found them but yeah these these plate-like laryngeal structures haven't been deported before but as you say maybe they're there and they've been overlooked i generally think they're not preserved i think that you know 
the windpipe. You hardly ever find, you know, like um, uh, tracheal rings, for example, in fossil dinosaurs. They would mostly have been cartilaginous. They could have been ossified in some. They're ossified in some birds, but they're hardly ever preserved, probably because the windpipe as a whole um, isn't preserved. But then you've also got the fact that how many people know any of this stuff? It's like what number of people like know anything or have done work on how laryngeal cartilage and laryngeal cartilages and hyoid bones match um you know function and behavior and and soft tissues it's like even among anatomists it's a tiny number of people that have actually ever published on this yeah i think particularly yeah and as you say we've got a lot of hyoids i think that um well a lot there are hyoids around yeah i think there's work to be done here what what they actually mean uh, it's because it's actually a tremendously large research program i suppose um yeah figuring out what different shapes actually do it's quite difficult like quite a lot of detailed anatomical work on living animals yes and they do actually say in the paper that um that if these laryngeal bones do have a role in specialization of the glottis and they do function as a sound modifier then then the sounds that the animal could have made could be related to courtship parental call predator defense and territorial calls so uh yeah i i, I like this it's uh it's it's uh, in line with our you know sort of speaking as someone who's been involved in projects like prehistoric planet it's in line with our general thinkings about what um non-bird dinosaurs were doing in terms of uh, social and sexual behavior and having yep. having a distinct like air quotes language for you know predator anti-predator sounds and um um yeah courtship calls and all that sort of stuff so i think it's i think it's pretty cool yeah yep um uh, i have to say also the paper is uh it's very strangely written really weird wording uh, it's almost like they don't nobody bothers to edit these papers anymore uh the third paper i wanted to talk about um is so with that little dig well it's like <sighs> It's kind. It's it's not. It's not okay. It's uh. I I, you know, <laughs> papers should be written so that you can actually understand them. I mean, this the the wording's really odd in a lot of the paper. Um, yeah, yeah. Scientific writing, huh? I mean, it can be done well, but it's generally not. Uh, uh finally, so really briefly, the third paper which came out, I think, last night. Um, we're talking on the seventeenth of February, twenty twenty three. Uh. I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of this researcher's name, which I apologise. Zishuan Kin, uh, Q-I-N. Uh, Kin et al. Michael Benson and Emily Rayfield and Chun Chi Lau are also on the authorship. It's also in communications biology. Functional space analyses reveal the function and evolution of the most bizarre theropod manual ungles. So uh, they wanted to do a uh quantitative analysis of hand claws in the theropods that have got weird hand claws so mostly that's alvarez saws which are these sort of chicken sized short forelimbed long-legged animals with apparently sensitive hearing and short curved robust thumb claws and therizinosaurs which range from sort of person sized to elephant sized often long-clawed, long-necked animals. And there's good evidence from analyses of their skulls and teeth that they were omnivores or herbivores, probably 
mostly leaf-eating herbivores. And Kin et al. did three different things, um, so far as I remember from reading the paper. They did FEA, finite element analysis, which is where you... Um, well, for, uh, so three things. First of all, they they like scanned the claws or obtained scans of the claws and reconstructed in the three-dimensional space. So even having a three-dimensional reconstruction of a, of a thing, as, as I've already said, for the spinosaur brains is significant. Secondly, they subjected them to finite element analysis, which is a method of testing how stresses and strains are distributed in objects originally designed for um, like testing plane components and has been applied widely, sometimes inappropriately, to... Uh, biology and thirdly they used a technique called functional space analysis i think which is where they this this was this was the most novel bit and the bit i was most interested in what have you what have you actually done that's novel they combined all of those i th i think they combined the finite element analyses with what we call a principal components analysis to work out where in morphospace the claws fitted with respect to the claws of other animals, where we think we've all got a hand on how their claws are used. I think that's what they did. Functional space analysis. It doesn't really sound that different to me from conventional kind of morphometrics, to be honest. But um, uh, their main take home is that they find that, again, this is a thing that's underplayed, but is very significant in science. They basically confirm what we thought was already the case. So for Alvarez saws, where people have hypothesized these animals use their little stout claws to like break into social insect nests, whether that's in rotting wood or, you know, whatever, they basically found support for that for Alvarez saws, but only for the highly modified Alvarez saws. So for the ones that aren't anatomically really kind of weird, uh, the, uh, the names of Hapl Haplocarus is, is the best known of the ones that's not really weird, but I can't see it in their paper. AO run uh, is the one that they've got as the non-weird one. I can't see. Oh, Haplocyrus is in there. Huh. Okay, so they found a bunch of them. Shishuguanicus, Haplocyrus, and Banicus, or Banicus, I don't know how you're supposed to say it. They found those ones to, and AO run, to be kind of like conventional, like not to have like a weird function, but they found the specialized ones, like your Mononicus, um, type ones they found that linonychus is in there as well they found them to be uh anatomically unusual in like mechanically unusual in terms of like claw function so that's that's good for therizinosaurs and this is the the sort of like the big thing that we're sort of really interested in those of us who've spoken about this paper is for standard therizinosaurs which have got large but not ridiculously large and strongly curved hand claws they found those claws um they look like they're suited for manipulation of foliage. They're suited for hook and pull style behavior, which as it sounds, you know, they sort of like hook around branches, which is correlated with yeah. their herbivory. But what about Therizinosaurus, which famously, it's not as well known as we'd like it to be, but we do know that it's got hand claws that are about 70 centimeters long and with the keratin would be longer. You know, people have said probably about a meter long. And those claws are not strongly curved they're shallowly curved and they're sometimes described in this paper they describe them as scythe like but a scythe is like more strongly curved they are very weakly curved for their length and I mean, they i don't know yeah an actual size yeah 
Oh, no, I'm thinking of a reaper. Anyway, yeah, sorry, go ahead. A scythe yeah, is very curved. A scythe for cropping yeah. grass, and I know this tool all too well from my gardening days, is strongly curved. And um, yeah, you're thinking of like, uh, <laughs> the, what does death, death hang around with? Yeah, but that's just for reaping, you know. Um, reaping souls. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on. A scythe is like a handheld thing, not the mm. thing with the long hand. Whatever, tangent. Um, yeah. Therizinosaurus, the giant Therizinosaur, the, the, the most uh, unusual of them, uh, its claws uh, function really poorly for everything. They're like really bad at hook and pull. They they don't appear to be suited for digging. They'd be pretty bad at things like, you know, sort of swiping up, like stabbing potential predators or whatever. So they say that maybe these... I can't see the text in front of me, but basically they say that um, these giant hand claws possibly had a display function. And it's like, um, oh, there's very there's one weird line in their paper. It's in the abstract. Our analysis reveals that efficient digging capabilities only emerged in late branching Alvarezsauroid for them. So this is what they say about Alvarezsaurs, rejecting the hypothesis of functional vestigial structures like T-Rex. Now, I didn't know that T-Rex was a vestigial structure. I thought that T-Rex was a kind of dinosaur that had famously short arms. But what they're basically <laughs> saying is that, yeah, these arms in these small arms in Alvarezsaurs are not vestigial. And they're saying that T-Rex does have vestigial However, the bizarre huge Therizinosaurus had sickle-like ungles of such length that no mechanical function has been identified. We suggest they were decorative and lengthened by paramorphic growth linked to increased body size. So, um, yeah, I think that's, that's really interesting and is in keeping with the fact that artists have been unable to resist... The uh, I don't think you've done this, but quite a few other artists have like, you know, Therizinosaurus is like, ooh, look at my claws. <laughs> yeah. Um, although I will point out that it's just we don't know, right? So we got a result outside of what we see in living animals. We suggest they were decorative. Yeah. Yeah. So that's not really a surprise, right? Yeah, they look really weird and we don't know what they're for because we don't have a good analog maybe well we've backed it up with numbers now yeah but i think that if you I were think... well if you're asked to provide if one as a you know paleontologist is asked to provide an opinion on the claws of therizinosaurus i think most people would say well they probably had a function in manipulation of foliage and they may also have had a secondary function which was well i'd actually say predator display anti-predator display would be a head of sociosexual display but um i'll take your but, point but yeah i mean but it's pretty obvious that they don't they wouldn't have been manipulating foliage in the way that much more curved claw um animals manipulate foliage i mean i don't mm. think there was ever you could look at it and say well they're just doing exactly the same thing yep yeah sure. i mean i agree it, yes it could be display I'm always a little bit like, can't we think of something a bit better than that? <laughs> because anything can be displayed, right? So it's sort of a hypothesis without a... Ref re it can't be refuted, which is why I don't like it. This, Yeah, so this is actually... Uh, I, I, I'd, be, I'd be wrong to say the most commented upon uh, 
quandary in the biological sciences, but it's certainly been commented yes. on many, many times because you can find any structure that you, yeah, you're right, you can't explain it another way. So you say, haha, well, it could be display. And then the pushback to that is, oh, yawn, isn't that the laziest, easiest answer? But then the pushback to that is, well, look at the living world. It's like, we all know that structures are multifunctional and organisms use bits of their bodies for all kinds of different things. But it seems that in many cases, unusual structures, <clears throat> excuse me, it seems that the main driver of the form of unusual structures is display. And if what's the, what's the purpose of like, of being a living thing, I think it's to create more living things. So like evolution selects for stuff that makes you sexy <laughs> yeah but it also selects against it because it has a functional cost so um i think though that we have we've talked about this many times and there are other ways of getting this and other papers of yours have done this so if you can find find that it happens at a particular stage of ontogeny or it's sexually dimorphic yeah. or something like this then you've got some some backing evidence that this is um this is sexually selected, at least. Okay, um, yeah, yeah. So uh, if only we had more specimens of Therizinosaurus. Wink, wink. Cause, yeah. Because you'd want... Yeah, so, so to back this up, we would want, like, juveniles... But we would want, like, a, a nice ontogenetic succession for Therizinosaurus so we can see that the manual claws undergo <clears throat> positive allometry or something. Mm. And preferably, we'd like two preserved. One of them like this with his hands in display <laughs> and the other one sort of like uh wooed in, in, Woo, a, in a wooing yeah. preserved in, in a wooed <laughs> in the wooed position <laughs> um so yeah. i just have to clear up this whole side business because we've got ourselves into a real mess there <laughs> so, Scythes are indeed the things you use to reap wheat and things like that and they are straight they don't have to be, but most of them are, and they do look like therizinosaur claws, right? Therizinosaurus claws. Yep. Important. Um, a sickle is possibly something else you're getting it confused with, which is a smaller handheld thing, which, and generally they are very, very tightly curved and more like the claws, a typical claw on a, on a, um, well, on a curved claw dinosaur anyway. So I think what I was saying, I've, I've now confused. The thing that I always called a scythe has low curvature and a long, re yeah, relatively shallowly curved blade, and it's on a long handle. Yes, that's, that's a scythe. what I call a scythe. In which case, well, if you go and listen to what you just said about this, this is very unclear. But yes. Okay, you are, you are correct. That is correct. <clears throat> We've cleared that up because we were going to get people talking about this. Yeah, everybody. Although, I, although, although I'm sure, I'm sure there's a thousand exceptions, and oh my god, all this, all the scythe nerds will be up in arms. I do remember there being like some, um, I wouldn't say heated discussion, but some uh, element of confusion in the. Forgive me for what I'm about to say, but in the fossil fish literature, there's like pectoral structures in a group of pachycormiform fishes that were described as scythe-like. And at some point, someone said, what are you talking about? That's not what a scythe is like at all. You're getting it completely wrong. And um, 
And it was because the person who originally used Scythe did not know what a Scythe was. Like that was, which is very common in just language, let alone science writing. Oh, this was, yep. some other real good examples of that where someone says, I, I will describe this as, I'm going to call this the nubbin. And then people are like, what, what, what the flip is a nubbin? Or what I imagine to be a nubbin ain't shaped like that that's that's a bad example but thing, <laughs> things of that things of that kind there's there's actually so we discussed before that um this this is still relevant to dinosaur paleobiology stuff there's that dinosaur systematics approaches and perspectives volume the the yellow one with the greg paul mm. skeletals on the cover from the 80s from yeah. the 80s i think from the late the 80s early 90s i think it's about 1990 mm. actually but um whatever yeah, it's whatever. very late 80s or there's, very early 90s. yeah there's a paper in that by the late alan charig and the now also late angela milner which is m- sort of meant to be their thinkings on what kind of theropod baryonyx might be when baryonyx is they still haven't you know that's years before they finish the monograph and they try and fit it into gautier's 1986 theropod phylogeny which we also mentioned earlier on in this podcast I think and um, and because it's written you can tell it's an Alan, Alan Charik thing more than an Angela Milner thing but it's like Gautier says this and we find this use of the term completely inappropriate and there's be like sort of a hundred words just on his use of he Gautier for example when he's talking about hands he always says manal and they say, I think the finally correct term is manual. And <laughs> so I'm like, it's like, yeah, yeah, it's true. But but I maybe maybe I'm Alan Charrick these days because I find myself doing the same thing. I think you're fine. <laughs> Actually, that's not how we use. But then it turns out that your own understanding of a term is due to your own idiosyncratic personal history and where you learn stuff, which is often like, oh, all these years I thought. A nut and a bolt were round the other way, and the, the nut was the screwy bit. That's not a good example, but um, yeah, and it's often like you find out that your parents just said something, and no one outside of your family says it, but you like certain words and uses of phrases and things which are just completely like people don't even understand what you're talking about, but you never really notice. It's really odd. There's yeah. Well, you do notice eventually, and that's when these stories come up. But yeah, I could care less, as the Americans say, and then, oh. that's that's always that's always bugged the hell out of me. And then it turns out it's bugged the hell out of like loads of people, including lots of Americans. And then it turns out that the reason that the Americans who use it use it use it because they know that it's wrong, and it's like actual fact. It's part of our dialect that we say, "I could care less," meaning I couldn't care less. It's like a deliberate. That is the explanation for it. It's like deliberately wrong. I've read about it's... this. Some some of them are deliberately wrong. I could care less. But I think it just it's just become a saying that people don't think about. They don't think about the literal meaning of it anymore at all. Yeah. So yeah, it has become a dialect, but it doesn't mean that those people are like, huh, you know what? I'm gonna get this deliberately wrong because uh-huh. it will be funnier that way. Take this King of England. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> George the Fifth or whatever. <laughs> um, on that note, uh, times are pressing. Uh, I've got another meeting in a couple of minutes. Oh my god! Yep. So let's wrap um, it up. Let's wrap it up. Uh, hey, do you like my Mega Raptor toy? No. No, it's terrible. <laughs> and listen, listen to the sound it makes. 
Yeah. Mega Raptor. Yeah. So the people that make the Ju- Jurassic World dinosaur toys, they just find out about a dinosaur and they quickly bash out a toy. So uh, idiots like me will buy them. You know, here's an Ichthyo Venator. <laughs> I mean, you know. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Darren, show and tell. Are you on the internet, John? I am. My website's johnconway.art and I am. I am on Mastodon at john at sauropods.win. Make sure I am prepared for this. I am on Twitter at turn around, you woolly. <laughs> hurry, hurry. We're trying to save Han from the bounty hunter. Beep, boop, beep, beep, beep. <laughs> well, at least you're still in one piece. Look what happened to me at Tetzoo. And I blog at touchpodsology.com. And this is the month, is February, Ancient Sea Reptiles, my new book. Have you seen it? Did I show you it? No, I don't think so. Oh, it's really good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's really? It's, it's Ancient Sea Reptiles, published by... Na- oh, okay. you're sorry, you did show it, it to did. Me, yes. There you go. Yeah. So I don't need to say anymore. It's yeah. only 20 English pounds. Published by Smithsonian Books in North America, Natural History Museum in this country. And yeah, I think I've said before, I need to like, get my act together in terms of doing some promotion stuff. Um, so thank you for listening. Hello to new listeners. And um, we'll see you later. Bye. Is that a nerd joke I don't get? It is, it is, yes.